Well, when I had planned to come back to you, I had planned to take a couple of weeks and share with you just burdens on my own heart as I've been sitting back and reflecting the few weeks away that I had. And last week I had the opportunity to share with you some of the things I was learning in the uh, discussion on forgiveness. And now this week I just want to share this week and next some things that I've been thinking about as far as the purpose and glory of the church. Thinking about as I was ministering in Argentina and looking at the spiritual leaders there and the church and where it was at, various burdens came on my own heart, reflecting on time out there that we had been out there since 2014, teaching them how to counsel, how to disciple, how to minister as a church, what plurality of leaders look like, a biblical ecclesiology. We looked at expository preaching and handling the scriptures. And as we were looking at that, we've been watching, particularly over the years, the church change as it is driven to be more like the scriptures, more in line with what God's word says. And even when I was out there, various pastors come, would come up to me and say, uh, to me, we have been taking what we've been learning and our church is changing. They say, how is that? Well, you know, one pastor, a pastor named Josue, uh, a young man who's about 20 minutes from where we were ministering at as a church, he's like, I've raised up multiple elders and now we're training men to be involved in ministry and uh, we're exposing the scriptures and uh, their church teams up with some other churches there to help, and uh, it was interesting that they had uh, taken one of the men from our um, team, um, Gonzalo, uh, over to minister to him, and they ministered from eight in the morning to six at night. I was like, "Wow, we uh, we have a lot to do. You know, we have s- some serious work to do. Just a, a full day of ministry together." because they just wanted to hear more and talk about truth. So they would have, you know, a couple hours of teaching. And Gonzalo spoke in Spanish, so he was preaching no translation. He gave them two full hours and then Q&A and then another preaching. And it was just a, a rich time. And I, I recognize, again, as I said last week, uh, I can tell that the ministry is growing because their questions are getting more and more complex and more and more nuanced, and it is uh, sweet to see the effects of the Word of God there. And as I I saw that, it just kept reminding me of this um, idea, then how would I be able to identify where God is at work? What do we look at? What do we look to see? And I can say, God is at work there, and I know for certain God is doing something. And so I have a question Now, frame it up like this for us to answer is, what is the aim of our church? What is our drive, our motivation? What is our direction, our goal? Why do we do what we do? Why do we minister the way that we minister? What is our aim? I certainly didn't go to Argentina to create a group of churches that look like Saving Grace Bible Church because I wanted my name on it. There had to be something that you're imparting to these men that you recognize if you follow this, the good hand of God will be upon you. That you will do God's work and he will produce his particular fruit in your midst. And it will be spiritually rich 
It will benefit you as the pastor and the people, as the congregants, as they hear the truth, and it will have its effect. So what is that? That's what I want to identify this week and next when we're together. Because how you answer that question reveals your convictions. It reveals what you believe. It reveals how you operate. And I think we live in a day and age where there is a, a lot of spiritual noise. A lot of ideas, a lot of things that are presented as spiritual but really aren't directing according to God's design. We, we have an environment today where you could get anything you want so that we're no longer concerned, per se, about God's heart, God's mind, God's working. It's something that sounds like God's work, might be his purposes. I mean, as the first hour, I was just sitting in the pew thinking about this general idea, and I recognize this. There are all kinds of hamburger restaurants out there. And you're like, yeah, Pat, you could probably name off a few for me. But I was thinking, you know, there's a McDonald's, and there's a Burger King, and a Brew Burger, and a Fuddruckers, and the Blue Jays, and Two Jays, and there are all these hamburger restaurants you could go to, and we live in a day and age that we'll just cater the hamburger to whatever you like. I'm thinking, you know, that's become the church as well. We can cater the church to be whatever you like. You want movies? We got a church service for you that takes movies and adapts it to messages. You want a traditional church? We can find a denominational church. You want an independent church? We can find you that kind of church. Do you want any flavor of ministry life you want? We can lay it out for you. You can pick and choose. But I guess the burdened question that I had in my heart is, is my spiritual life the same as selecting a hamburger? It's open. I can pick any one of these restaurants. It's all the same. It's going to give me some calories, feed my belly for a moment, and move me on to the next event. Or is there something unique about God's work? I am convinced when Jesus says what he does in Matthew chapter 7, Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And then he makes the words, and few find it. That it's not as easy as it's being presented. And that there are a lot of counterfeits, a lot of confusion, and many are deceived and misled. And that's what burdens my heart. Because I don't want anyone deceived and anyone misled and anyone that would be uh, led astray because they listened to the noise and were distracted from what God had revealed. When I was down in Argentina watching ministry there, I remember when I first went there, the ministry typically was revolving around one guy, one guy who kind of rose up in ministry, was the pastor, everyone followed the one guy. 
And when I would ask them, why is it that you have just one leader there? You're not raising up a plurality of leaders. You're not training others to bring others along so that by a group of godly men, you're effectively shepherding the body. Why wouldn't you do that? The answer is we couldn't trust anyone else. Living in a culture where you can't trust government and you can't trust others, the only one you could trust is yourself. They just create an environment where one person would have all of the authority. Going against, again, God's design. You can go back to Titus chapter 1 when, when Paul said he left Titus in Crete to establish the churches and he says that you would select elders, plural, many, would come in and shepherd See, there is what the scriptures say, but then there is the wisdom of man and the war. Every culture has its challenge. American culture isn't any different. Our culture has its challenges. We're battling with pragmatism today. The idea that bigger is better. The idea that success is measured by financial security or by the size of ministry. Bigger is better more popular, the must be the more successful. The more affluent, the more successful. So the more people and more money equals success. And what do we need to do to grow? It's all kinds of ideas, all kinds of things that we could turn to to build church, all kinds of ideologies. TED Talks and human wisdom become more valuable than the scriptures. And in fact, we become attracted to a kind of preaching that takes truisms and presents them as spiritual ideas. It's almost as if I could preach a whole series of messages from Murphy's Law and the church would be satisfied by it taking a true idea, a true principle, something we say that relates to human experience and relates to our emotions, and if you just wrap some biblical flavor around it, say it's of God, of the Spirit, then it's accepted. Turn over to Acts 28. There was a sermon I was listening to from a particular preacher And he goes to Acts 28, and he illustrated my point here blatantly. I'm not even sure if he was aware he did it, but Acts 28, come to this passage, and this is the account of Paul. He's being taken to Rome. He's in a prison, imprisoned, and then there was a shipwreck, and he was shipwrecked off of the island of Malta. And the men swam ashore, and they swam ashore, and it says there that they were then brought safely through, and we found out on that island it was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had been set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. And then verse 3, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. This particular preacher said, here's the truth in this passage. Whenever you start a fire, vipers attack. Whenever you're at work and you're doing something significant, you're going to be attacked. A truism 
a general idea that once you put your hand to something, you're going to face difficulties. We could see that truism all over in life. If I commit myself to a particular hard labor at work, I'm going to find difficulties in the challenge. If I commit myself to any kind of project that's going to require great effort, there's going to be pushback. And the idea was that that is what God was teaching here. That's not what God is teaching here. What is clear in this particular passage, what, what God is teaching here, is that Paul was a man of God. And that even when Paul was, again, a Attacked by this viper, God demonstrated his good hand was upon Paul that he was able to be healed by that. They saw him as a man of God. Notice again what that came down to at the end of verse 6. It says that they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall from uh, fall down dead. But after they had been waiting a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they began to say that he was a god Notice verse 8 clarifies. It happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysteria. And Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when he we were sitting, or setting sail. They supplied us with all we needed. What was it? God was using the Apostle Paul to minister to this people and their needs, and those people supplied that whole group with what they needed to get on their journey. God raised up difficulties to authenticate Paul. That's what the passage was emphasizing. The problem is that today we are more contented in taking spiritual trite truths and making them spiritual. Trite ideas, things that sound right, sound like, again, Murphy's Law, things that sound like truisms, and then giving them spiritual language. And we say that's of God. But it moves away from God. It doesn't trust in His Word, His work. He doesn't trust in his wisdom or understanding. And as a result, these truisms dressed up in spiritual language will not produce the spiritual fruit in the lives of its hearers. And that's what I'm concerned about. Because the net effect of sitting under those kinds of ideas will be spiritual apathy. Weakness, immaturity, that it will come out in failed lives and broken lives. It will come out in spiritual disappointments, come out in great difficulties in their life. And so, of course, we commit to things like preaching the Word of God and ministering and opening up the Scriptures and unfolding the mind of God from the Scriptures so that everyone would know from the Scriptures this is what God would have to say, knowing that that truth will build up, it will edify, it will transform, it will equip the person of God, that they would be fit for every good work. But as you do that, there is the challenge. The challenge that comes, that one says, well, you're just too narrow. You're too legalistic. You're too proud. 
You speak with authority. You are in that authority. You just demonstrate an arrogance. You don't really care. When you hear something like that, the temptation for all of us is to think, well, do we have to change? Do we have to lower the, change the message? Do we have to tone it down in some way? Is it really me the, that's the offense? Did my message, my efforts cause an offense? That is the struggle. And when that struggle happens, there's the temptation. Do I reshape a ministry to reflect all the other ministries out there. Should my hamburger restaurant look like everyone else's and I fit in line so that I match what everyone else is doing? So that's the temptation. And it's not really the first generation people I'm worried about, it's the second generation. Because the second generation has the convictions of the first generation, just didn't go through the labor to get it. They didn't go through the personal sacrifices. Think about it like this. God spoke to Adam, said to Adam, you may eat of any tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, lest you die. From Adam, Adam was to pass on to Eve that same message. Clearly he did, because when tempted, Genesis chapter 3, Eve repeated, adding only her own little nuance to it. But it was Eve, the second generation, having heard through Adam of the message, she here is now vulnerable to evaluate. I know the command, I know the instruction, but I can also see the fruit, that it is uh, good to the eye and is pleasing. It looks like it's good to eat. And now there's the question, do I hold on to the same conviction? This is the temptation. The temptation of our hearts are, why are we forming the convictions that we have? What are we, what are we striving after? And what I'm... You know, burdened by, as I think many are striving or pursuing ministry from this position where their convictions aren't fully formed. They are in the place where they are either mimicking a faith or walking with a borrowed faith. But they haven't formed convictions. They haven't formed confidence in the truth. They haven't formed a desire to say, I desire to walk in the will of God, to walk in faith, to see the fruits of faith manifested in my heart and life. And so they have, again, a kind of borrowed conviction. Just as a side note, if you wanted to evaluate your heart, say, well, where am I in this spectrum here? Am I walking in in a faith that's growing and maturing? Am I walking in a kind of um, mimicking of faith? just in word only, here are a few signs. One would be that you are filled with apathy. If your life is filled with apathy, you should be asking the question, what am I being fed by? What am I striving after? What do I mean by apathy? Meaning this, that there's no real spiritual appetite for righteousness. There's no delight in righteousness. You're contented in being around it, contented in being under the benefits of it, I mean, we all love the benefits of peace. We all love the benefits of a, a happy environment. But is there a longing for the truth? 
A delighting in righteousness? Is there a, as Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. There's a growing and increasing appetite in the righteous where they desire righteousness. But if you find yourself more apathetic, more cold and indifferent, there will be signs. The signs will be some of these things. You'll be self-absorbed, consumed with other hobbies, consumed with your own personal interests, consumed with your personal comforts, consumed with yourself, not others. And your love for others will be cold. It'll be indifference. That's why, you know, First John chapter uh, 3 and 4 are clear about the love of the brethren and what it looks like. The one who is apathetic has no love for others or love for righteousness. The other is the kind of person in this is one who lacks wisdom. That is, they cannot speak spiritual truth to any situation. They don't know which passage to go to, which idea to draw out, no principle to go to. They are at a point in which they lack all spiritual wisdom to be able to give an answer to any situation. And they are walking in a borrowed conviction, borrowed traditions. They like the comfortable environment of being around God's people. But when it comes time to saying, where do I take a principle to answer this question? There is no answer. They have grown comfortable in the middle. Or one more, two more. One is isolating themselves. They pull away. They do not hang around God's people. They become hypercritical of others. They can't receive exhortation and encouragement. They are isolating. And then the last is one who replaces spiritual things with humanistic ideas. They replace spiritual things with man's wisdom. We come to church for a lot of different reasons. And it's funny, I I just reflecting recently... uh, couple of individuals that come to the church and they immediately ask, where are all the other single people? The idea is I come to church finding other single people just to kind of see the list of options at this ministry. If there's the right option, I'll stay. If not, I'm heading on to the next one. Certainly one possible way to measure the church. I'm not sure you'll be blessed if that's the one you're using. And I've seen men and women in this category. There are then those, again, who choose the church on music styles or theological customs and on down the line. All of these are are choices, but they're replacing, again, uh, spiritual desires replaced with humanistic ideas, the wisdom of man. There is an appropriate way to measure the ministry, an appropriate way to look at God's work. The appropriate way to see, is this indeed the reflection of God that he is accomplishing his good purposes? But as I said, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of spiritual noise. And it was evident to me this week, I received an email this week from Fellowship Church in Texas. Not sure if you've been there. But the church sent me an email with this subject line, rated Y for you. And in the message, they said this, can you smell the butter popcorn already? Question mark, exclamation. Get ready for your favorite concessions, 
free popcorn, characters, family fun, and a biblical message by Pastor Ed Young woven into some of Hollywood's biggest blockbuster movies. I thought about that and think, if that was just one time, the first time I heard that, I would laugh and leave it. But now it's commonplace. It's commonplace among many to present that. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we begin to do that? It's not because we don't have creativity. I mean, come in a VBS week a couple weeks ago. Walk through this place on VBS, and you will know not only do we have the skilled laborers, we have the imagination. We have the technical skills. We have the teachers. We have the skills to be able to radically transform this place to anything you want. If you want to make this place look like New Zealand or Australia, you want it to look like the outback, we, will, we can do that for you. I mean, I could come up, I was thinking about this, I could come up with all kinds of biblical storylines to reflect today's movies. If I wanted, I could preach a message on Buzz Lightyear movie. And the Buzz Lightyear movie is about Jesus coming to rescue us. I would preach. Or the Top Gun movie. Top Gun is about God overcoming impossible odds to save us when everyone thought his ways were out of date. Against all the impossible odds, God keeps overcoming. Thank you, Tom Cruise, for teaching us that. Or the Elvis movie is about corrupt leaders who take advantage of talented people like Pharaoh who took advantage of Moses and the Israelites. Is that biblical? Certainly the themes of Moses and Pharaoh are there. But it's that level of spirituality that leads to spiritual emptiness. It's not, we don't preach those things because we can't, because we can't imagine it, because we're not creative enough or talented enough to think about those things. We don't preach those things because they are unspiritual. They are cheap. Useless, carnal, and spiritually empty. They delight in human wisdom and human ingenuity. They are, at the heart, faithless and hopeless attempts to minister to spiritual needs. Ministering the wisdom of man when somebody needs the wisdom of God. To put it in... The terms of the scriptures, these who preach this way are clouds without water. And imagine yourself in an agrarian society when you desperately need water and you look to the sky and you think there's a cloud, we might get rain today, we might be able to feed our crops. And that cloud comes in and comes through and not one drop happens. There is, by seeing the very cloud in the sky, an anticipation of hope, an anticipation of excitement. Maybe now God is going to show us favor, but he keeps passing by. No fruit, no help. They are, as been said, candles without light. They are fire with no heat. They come presenting an image, but they are not 
of what God produces. So that means then we ought to be able to identify then what is God's working? What does it look like to see something and say that this is of God, this is accomplishing God's purposes, this is indeed truly of God and it's moving. God is moving and directing. I thought about it and I wrote down a bunch of things, about seven different ideas. And as I was reflecting on that, I recognized this actually falls into two categories. It's the, it falls into leadership and the people, or I'd say the pastors and the parishioners with the two categories. You can see the evident moving and work of God in its, in its leadership and in its people. Today, I'll look at, I'll pick on the pastors. Next week, I'll pick on the parishioners. Not really picking on, really just encouraging and building you up. But is this, that there is a clear, evident work that is manifest both in the spiritual shepherds and in the flock of God. That makes, again, God's ministry unique. That man cannot duplicate it on his own. In his own wisdom, and his own understanding, man cannot create what God, only God can create. I can tell you, just having been around ministry for so long, and been in various counseling contexts where I thought, this is it. This is hopeless. I've reached the end of myself. And then God produces a transformation of the heart that once again it reminds me regularly, this is of God. God regularly pushes us to the point in which we are in a position where we are completely helpless. And I think he wants us there so that he can be on display, that his wisdom is on display, that his power is on display, that his work is on display, so that he receives all the glory. So what does a ministry look like? And the ministry has a look. Its aim, its purpose is this, the glory of God. The glory of the God is our aim, it's our purpose, it's what we drive for. To glorify and to lift up God. And it is manifested in two ways. It is how shepherds minister and it's how the people respond to the truth. Those two ways demonstrate the riches of God's glory in the ministry. So the, the rest of our time, we're almost out of time. The rest of our time is to look at the shepherds and their ministry. And we say this, a church which seeks the glory of God is marked by spiritual leaders who teach the scriptures and shepherd the flock of God. They have to do both. They have to be teachers and they have to be shepherds. They have to be engaged in God's with God's people, alongside of God's people, walking with them, and they have to be able to minister the truth, open it up. Not one or the other, but both. These are the kinds of shepherds that God selects for his church. How do I know that? Well, let me just take you to a few places. Let's start with our scripture reading, the First Thessalonians 2. Look at this marvelous passage, First Thessalonians 2. Look at verses 1 through 12 again. I love this passage for so many reasons. 
Because Paul not only describes in verses 1 through 12 his ministry, his interaction with the Thessalonian church, but then he describes in verses 13 and following their interaction, their response. And both sides of this equation is so rich. Notice Paul and his, what comes out of this in regards to how he viewed himself in his ministry. Verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Oh, that's Second Thessalonians. It's like, wow, that's really unique. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2.1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. I mean, this is, uh, even as he starts here, significant because Paul had just been in Philippi. He had been physically mistreated. He was... He was flogged, he was thrown into prison, and all because he ministered the gospel, and it it opposed some prominent people there in Philippi. He threw him into prison, and he suffered greatly, but God had delivered him. And he left there, and he came, and he began to minister in Thessalonica, just as he had previously ministered, and he was fruitful there as well in Thessalonica. Verse 2 says, And after we had already suffered, been mistreated in Philippi, notice, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. That is to say, is as I came ministering and there were people opposing the truth and they were standing against it, we didn't change. We didn't lower the standard. We didn't change the message. Even when we came in preaching this message, why? Because we had boldness in our God to speak. It wasn't in us. The message didn't originate in us. It originated in our God, and we delivered the message of God. Even though, again, we faced opposition. And they did face opposition there in Thessalonica. They had to be delivered because there was an uproar. Once again... Just as Paul ministered in Philippi and cast out a demon from a slave girl who was possessed, he came here and he posed the idol makers, those who were making idols from silver and other things, and he opposed them, and they started to stir up conflict there in Thessalonica. But he preached the gospel in opposition, and he said, we did this with boldness, even amidst much opposition. Our confidence was not in ourselves. Our confidence were not in men. Our confidence was in God. Verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. That is to say, we didn't come with our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, our own understanding. We didn't make up this message. We're not coming up with our, new, our own ideas. We come to you again, verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God called us to this. He selected us. He approved us. He set us into this work. And because he entrusted us with the gospel, so we speak, verse 4. Again, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. What kind of spiritual shepherds are they? They're the kind of shepherds who operate with God observing their labors. God analyzes the heart. God measures. 
our labors, our efforts. It's not the results. I mean, think about this. We tend to think ministry is measured by how successful we are, how big the facilities are, how many people are coming. Paul says it this, it's God who examines our hearts. None of us are going to be able to see from the outside and look at a ministry and see whether it's good or not. God sees by examining the hearts. Paul knows that. Verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We didn't come to flatter you, build you up, make you confident in us because of our persuasive speech. God knows all of that. He knows our words. He analyzed every one of our messages. He knows our hearts. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We weren't seeking your approval when we were doing this labor. We weren't asking whether or not you liked it, whether or not we, uh, how could we reach the community better and send out a, a survey to figure out what everybody wanted. We didn't come seeking some public poll and to see what the majority of the answers were and decide we'll shape our message based on how everybody wants to hear these truths. No, we didn't come seeking glory from men. Even though, verse 6, the middle of verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, as apostles we could have done these things, we certainly deserved it, with the various privileges and responsibilities that we have as shepherds, as ministers of the word of God, we could have done those things, but we didn't. Verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Thinking about that whole idea. I'm thinking about the minister's life is a public life and a private life. They must say majority. No pastor who preaches and shepherds by what you see from afar. You draw conclusions about me from the pulpit because what you see in the pulpit. Because you see me from afar, you tend to think, He must act that way at home. He must uh, set his family down at dinner and stand up and preach to his kids. You see the exhorting side. You see the motivating side of Pastor Rag, but you don't see the private side. Look at this here in in, in verse 7 and 8 here. Here's the private side of Paul's ministry. It was gentle a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That is not only a personal, tender care and interaction, but it is also a private interaction, personal events. I chuckle to myself when someone thinks, I can't go to Pastor Rag for counseling. I think it's because you haven't been. Because everyone who does come, they keep signing up. You know, I want to be there more. 
Why? Because there is a gentleness in personal ministry that comes when ministering the gospel to particular hurts and needs. And there's a joy when we discover a problem, when we open up the scriptures and we see God's answer, and then the spiritual fruit that comes out of it. There's a care that comes from a shepherd who, as verse 8 indicates, they're having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, not only give you the message, not only the truth, but also our own lives because you become very dear to us. There is a personal sacrifice. My whole life is given, Paul says, to you. We labored among you care for you, build you up, strengthen you. Verse 9, but there's a second aspect to the shepherd, the pastor. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There was a striving, a labor, an effort, a diligence that was applied by him that he can continue to minister the truth. You are witnesses also, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. We were loyal, we were consistent, we were devout, we were dedicated, upright in all of our words and practices. Now I love this, verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. I think about this all the time. The pastor, shepherd, is a conflicted creature. At one time, caring like a mother would, tenderly care for his children, and at another time, a father, exhorting, encouraging, imploring. At one time, weeping with those who weep, and another time, rejoicing with those who rejoice. At one moment, looking at spiritual corruption and spiritual uh, failure, and at another moment, seeing newness of life, spiritual life. One point, seeing apostasy and somebody abandoning the faith, and at another moment, seeing spiritual growth and maturity at all time. That's why Paul says, you know, Who suffers without my suffering? There's a burden in labor. But here, Paul, as he's ministering to the Thessalonians, he is saying of the Thessalonians, I have ministered not only as the mother tenderly caring, but also as the father exhorting. That is, when you may struggle against doing what's right, there is an exhorting, an encouraging, a pressing on. There is an encouraging when you've grown weak, when you've grown Frail, when you've doubted, there's an encouraging. And when there is a kind of stubbornness, an apathy, there's an imploring, an appealing. Each one is a father with his own children. These are the kinds of shepherds who are caring, ministering, moving somebody along, building them up so that they're not caught up in a spiritual apathy, but they're caught up in pursuing the glory of God, the ministry of God. To what effect, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is the work? The work is so that there is holiness produced in God's people. 
that they walk in a worthy manner, in a God-honoring manner, in a God-pleasing manner. So the whole effort then, if you're looking at a ministry and saying, does it have its aim at the glory of God, just look at the fruit of its shepherds. Are they producing people who are walking in a worthy manner of the God who has called them? In one sense, as Paul is ministering here, he is ministering aware of the future benefits to come in Christ. Let me show you two other passages real quick. We're way out of time, but two more passages. I'm not going to cheat you like I gave these truths the first hour. I have to give them to you as well. Notice 1 Peter chapter 5, the riches of this truth. Not only does God give to his church shepherds who care richly for their for his people and minister to his people and they minister in tenderness and minister in exercising and exhorting and encouraging them. But Peter gives, says it like this in 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4, he describes shepherds and he says this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's saying there, I, he's drawing out particularly here his audience. These are elders. These are shepherds. And, he's, and he draws attention to himself. He also is an elder like they are. He's a shepherd like they are. He's a shepherd who has, again, witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And this phrase, and is a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He's saying here, I'm converted I'm a believer. I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I want to speak to you fellow shepherds. Notice what he says to them, verse 12, or verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. This is the command. Shepherd them. Among you, the people in your midst, shepherd the people in your midst, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. You are shepherding, caring for, ministering. But you're doing this, again, not because you were compelled to do it. You voluntarily gave in to this. A lot of ways one could be compelled. I've seen men compelled to ministry because their spouse pushed them into it. Their parents pushed them into it. Others pushed them into that work. No, you do this as a desire, your own volition. You aren't satisfied with anything else. For the Lord and his kindness towards me. I was thinking about this in ministry after graduating seminary. I worked for a few years in IT work. Never satisfied by it. Always recognizing there was something more I needed to be doing. I had to do something more. The Lord made it obvious to me that there was more. There's that sense. A shepherd who's flocking, a shepherd who's ministering to the flock of God is exercising voluntarily. It is their will to be in God's labors. And you're ministering, again, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You're doing that not for personal Pleasure, for personal reputation. I think I've used this illustration before, but I was, I was in Africa 
And I remember ministering to a group of students in Africa. And all these men in the training center in Africa had a long pinky fingernail. It's like, what in the world is that? You don't know how to cut that nail? Is that a sacred nail? You know, I started asking them, you know, what is this? I mean, you have fingernail clippers, then get the thumb and all the other fingers. Why don't you finish the last one, you know? Even it all out. Then I was told, well, they do that so as to demonstrate that they don't work in the farms. They have a job in the books. They don't have to have the hard labor that others do. And I took them to this very passage and rebuked them right there. Are you in the ministry then for your own personal privilege? So you don't have to suffer and labor like they do, like a farmer does? Then you go out in the fields and bring the farmers in here because it's the farmers who need to be ministering. You don't labor for sordid gain. You labor with eagerness. You shepherd the flock of God who, to care for God's people Verse 3, not yet, or nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Care for, minister, and prove to be upright. And then you're faith filled, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherds who labor with the anticipation that the king is coming, the Lord is coming, and when the Lord comes, he, he brings his rewards at that time. Many have their rewards in full right now. Then they're going to have to give an account to the coming shepherd. But a church that's, again, reflecting the aim of God, a church that is reflecting the glory of God, are going to have shepherds who are willingly Serving the people of God, building them up, proving to be an example, living in faith, doing it with eagerness and joy. One more thing to point out. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. There is this one little principle that I want to draw out here. The reason why I keep going back to the importance of, of uh, faithful shepherds is because they are given to the church as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 teaches that, starting in verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given, and then this phrase, according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is a different gifting than the gifting of the Holy Spirit. This is particularly Christ's gift. That's the possessive there at the end of verse 7. This is what Christ gives. And then he goes on and he defends the whole idea that he also explained in Colossians chapter 2, the conquering hero who goes in and conquers his enemy. And when he conquers his enemy, he comes out and he brings the spoils of war. And with that, he gives away treasures out of his con- what he's conquered. That was basically from 8 to verse 10, describing Christ's ascension and descension. But as Christ comes and he conquers, he gives out gifts. What are they? Verse 11, he tells us. He gave, again, the he, referring back to Christ in verse 7, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. 
Christ gives to his church these various ministers who care for and build up the church. We today, whenever we come and we sit under the scriptures, we come receiving the message of Christ through his apostles to minister to us and build us up today. Shepherds who teach, shepherds who give us the word of God, shepherds who minister to us the truth, have an effect in our midst. And that's what Paulin goes on to explain from verses 12 through verse 16. He goes on to, to explain the effect. There's an equipping of the saints. There's a stability of spiritual life. There's a maturity. In verse 13, you're matured into the measure of Christ. There, there is in verse 14, a stability, a spiritual stability that comes. You're no longer tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. False teachers and false teaching do not lead you astray. You are, are stable in your spiritual lives. You, verse 15, are growing up into maturity. Verse 16, there's a mutual stimulation that comes to encourage one another in godliness. All of it flows back from Christ to his gifts to the church that then flow out into the body. That cannot be produced by a person speaking a message about what they learned from some secular movie. It must come from God. It comes from His Word, His Spirit, His work, and it's done through His agents. So that a church, then, that has the aim of the glory of God, has the handiwork of God on display... And the evidence that God is on display are Christ-like shepherds ministering the truth, cultivating maturity, producing spiritual lives, strengthening the body with the truth so that the body has wisdom. And they're not tossed here and there. They can speak truth. They delight in truth. They hunger for the truth. They want more of it. Shepherds, again, who are the ones that God would expect, will come filled with wisdom. They'll come speaking truth. They will come showing love. They come full of concern. They're leading with conviction. They are exercising authority. They're showing tender care. They're exhorting and encouraging. And the effect are seen in the people. And that's what we'll look at next week the effect of this kind of labor in God's people. But I hope for us, so it protects us and protects the people we get to minister to is to encourage and compel people to look to God's work, delight in it, because it will protect you and build you up. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you when we fix our eyes on your glory, every other distraction fades out, fades away. When we fix our eyes on you and we aim to honor you, there is a protection and a grace that comes that ministers to us personally, builds us up, gives us assurance, stability, so that we can endure through the difficulties. And when you use your ministers, your shepherds to minister to us and they model a faith, 
where they anticipate the glories to come when Christ is revealed, our hearts are built up and we are encouraged. And so we pray, Father, may we continue to strive after this aim that we would seek to glorify you and encourage others to do the same. The pursuit of you is worthy of our whole life, our, all of our energy. For in you we find peace and rest, but even the depths and the riches of our own imagination are not even capable of fully grasping the riches of your character and your ways. And so may we be a people that are striving after you, that we seek your glory as our aim, so that we would fade out of the way and that you would be richly on display in us. Thank you for this time around your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.